Designated Driver with Celestian. Today we're welcoming guitarist and composer Aziz Ibrahim onto our Designated Driver podcast show with Celestian. I'm a doctor now, actually. I've just remembered. Are you? I've Congratulations. Honorary Tell de- us more. I've got an honorary degree, yeah, from Salford University. Oh, wow, how fantastic. <laughs> when did you get that? Uh, last year, a year before last, because it was 2020 last year. You know, it was a year before last, I think. Mm-hmm. So I got honorary PhD from Salford Uni. But they hand it out. <laughs> Very nice. What does it feel like? Well, what should we address you as now? Uh, Doc- doctor. <laughs> Fool. <laughs> Fool. That's being a bit harsh, isn't it? <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> so how um, how was last year for you? Narcissistic? No, no. Um, I don't know. We Brits, we do feel like we can't, um, you know, brag about any of our achievements, though, do we? It's the British way, eh? It is, it is. No, I couldn't possibly, I couldn't possibly, darling. Um, so, obviously, we're, we're quite early on into this year, of course, but um, yeah. what, obviously, the world's been turned upside down in all sorts of horrendous ways. Um, what was last year like for you, um, and how's, how's it been this year so far? I'm guessing you might have had some plans change and all that side of things. Yeah, um, last year was pretty horrendous. Um I think we all had the impression that it was short term, but as things progressed, <clears throat> then uh, the reality kind of struck in, uh, struck home really. Um, for me, you know, I, I musicians were kind of different categories. I'm a improviser of life in general. You know, when I perform, I kind of perform in that Frank Zappa-esque way where I never want a show to be the same. I never want a guitar solo to be the same. Mm-hmm. Um, I react to situations. I mean, there's two sides of me. There's a South Asian side of me and there's the musician side of me, the improviser. And South Asians are improvisers because their history comes from colonialism and it comes from uh, settling in this country. It comes from growing up and reacting to situations, whether it be racism or just quick thinking on your feet you know, just to survive or to be, you know, to fit in. Uh, And I think in general that applied last year that I had that skill set, that intuition told me that I needed to make changes immediately. So as soon as we went into that lockdown, I found myself retraining myself just because I wanted to. uh, And I embraced the digital world um, and embraced it in the sense that I started to study gamers youtubers influencers mm-hmm. digital influencers podcasters anybody who was utilizing that digital skill set and i was learning those tricks of the trade i mean i'm not saying that i've achieved that but i think that's what it brought out in me last year so all last year was spent that kind of youtube study <laughs> of how to change my practice to a digital practice and also how to kind of look at the music industry and, and see how that's changed because it's completely changed and the model, the business model, it, it, record labels are still applying the old model even though they are selling digitally and applying their rules and laws digitally but they can't compete with the gamers, you know, they're, they're, the content they put out every single day. And then this year has been the same. Um, <clears throat> more of that but actually securing work for myself and a change of direction but still applying that improv those improvisational skills and uh but applying my knowledge of music because it's evolved so much from 
hey, I play the guitar to, hey, I'm in a band and hey, I'm a songwriter and hey, I'm on tour and hey, I'm, you know, making money from tours and writing music and, you know, publishing and whatever. It, <clears throat> it's evolved now to what's this? How do I release, you know, broadcast and distribution, digital distribution and how that works, analytics, understanding the whole process. I mean, it's been a one massive learning curve, but in a sense, it's kept me kind of grounded and focused. Um, yeah, I hope that answers the question. <laughs> no, it definitely does. Do you think, um, you know, in a sort of way of looking at like a silver lining, um, it's good that you've been able to find time to look into all these other things that perhaps you wouldn't have done otherwise? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that because I, I try to, um, for, for my own sake as well, I, I try to stay positive because, you know, life can throw you so many blows and, and this is a major blow for the world, <clears throat> for um, people in general. Um, lifestyles, livelihoods, health, well-being, mental health, well-being, so important. And some, to some people, they're just words. But for me, I think I've strived to stay positive. And I, I have my moments. I mean, I've been through kind of traumas myself the past few months and lost close friends. <clears throat> Um, you know, other things, you know, uh, have affected me. Well, you won't know, but have affected me in so many ways. But staying positive mm. for me is so important. And I know that I have so many people who are, are friends, some that I've never met. And they do kind of look to you sometimes for inspiration, for um, support, support through just staying positive and just staying strong and stable um occasionally i've lapsed into you know i'm the one who needs help but then i've almost deleted anything that i've written mm -hmm, yeah. <laughs> i've deleted posts because i know that it's important to not that i'm a role model but i know that i have influence on people through my own nature and positivity and struggle you know my struggle in music to achieve what i've achieved has been hard work um and other people you know, or I, I think, you know, aspire to achieve better than me. So, and I like that and I want to keep that positive message going all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And we're all about that headliner as well. That's actually one of the main reasons we started this podcast series last um, April, I think it was, because obviously it's very doom and gloom out there, isn't it? So we wanted to just keep that positivity up, see what creatives are doing during this difficult time and just creating that sense of unity. Like We're all in it together, aren't we? So I think you spreading that positive message is, is great, really. I think that we... Um you know, we we despair sometimes because we think, what can we do individually? But individuals make a difference. Uh, they so make a difference uh, because they, they inspire others or they provide support. And then we network together and then that network creates a, a very strong foundation. I, you know, I understand how that system's work, system works. So I that's what kind of motivates me uh, and, and drives me. Even when I drop low, I do manage to pick myself up, but I'm very old school, you know, I'm a 60s child, so mm. I'm very old school in terms of uh, self-motivation without support groups. Uh, I was supported by my parents, so um, I was fortunate to have two, you know, loving parents. So I was supported, uh, roof over my head, schooling, those kind of things, love in the house. So I do understand the message and the importance of it. And music is the core element for me um, that I... 
it's so important to me, far more important than almost anything else. And it's been my common bond. And it's a, it's a, a medium which requires no passports. I always say, you know, no passports required with music. The friendships that I make, the... <coughs> Uh, the creativity angle, uh, so many aspects of it. And that's just coming from a working class kid, um, you know, who can have a very sarcastic streak in him. (laughs) (laughs) That's lovely. That's lovely to hear a bit about your um, background and sort of outlook on everything. Um, Yeah, music is so important, of course, to all of us, especially at the moment. I mean, it's great to just have that escapism, isn't it? So um, I think some of our listeners may know already, just for any that don't, um, you're obviously best known for your work as a guitarist with Simply Red and the Stone Roses. Um, but before we delve into all of that, just to go back to a little bit to when you first picked up a guitar. So when did you start playing? Was this when you were a kid, I'm guessing? Yeah, absolutely. I, I was seven years old um, when I went to primary school. My, my primary school teacher, my class form teacher, junior two, he, he, when you used to get free milk and you sat down and they gave you time to relax and he used to pull out his acoustic guitar and play his tunes and he'd play Streets of London or something or whatever. But I was just, you know, absolutely gobsmacked by this instrument, these silver strings. And um, and that was it. Um, I did my dying fly on the floor and insist, you know, I was crying for a guitar <laughs> for my birthday. And <clears throat> my mum and dad, I mean, money then was, it wasn't very much. My dad was barely earning probably like 10 pounds a, you know, um, no a week or something. I don't know what the wages were. It was in the press association, the Reuters organization. Mm-hmm. My mum was a seamstress, um, you know, sewing hundreds of uh, garments every day for a pittance. And then, uh, but they still bought me this guitar. It was five pounds. So it was a lot of money then. Um, but that was it. That was the beginning of <laughs> the end, maybe. <laughs> um, so I've been playing since then. Um, and, like I said, I'm an improviser, so we didn't have lessons, couldn't afford them, we didn't have anything. There, there were books you could buy, you learn, you know, Song a Day and Bert Whedon's, you know, learn to play guitar, you know, in a week or whatever. Um, but I learned to play from two things. One was from record players, putting on a piece of vinyl, heard a piece, uh, some, a piece of music I liked, and then just trying to work out the parts by by ear, by just keep playing that part again and again and wearing the vinyl out until I'd got it. And the other was the library, local library, which is Longsight Library. Um, they started a uh, a lending system of records and cassettes. So I used to borrow uh, vinyl and cassettes of bands I got into very early on. At first it was rockabilly, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> like I said, Bert Weed and so on and Buddy Holly and and then I got into rock and blues and I was learning anything I could get my hands on, like Santana and Deep Purple and Led Zepp and anything that was out at that time. So it was like 70s releases and so on. And it just kept progressing like that. And fortunately for me, I learned to play by ear. So I could adapt to any situation. That's what I mean about improvisation. That I, um, Even though I couldn't play a style of a genre of music, I would say, yeah, I can and get the job first. And, and then I'd go and learn it <laughs> by putting some mm-hmm. music on and and kind of busking it in a way. Um, and that's how I've always played. Um, it's not that I'm not a master of one, or, or maybe, you know, can I use that word master? But it's just that I know what it's like to be put in the deep end and then have to use what skill set you've got. And that skill set for me was developed from improvisation and learning by ear. So 
even though I've written symphonies for orchestras like the Manchester Camerata, I, I can do it because I can learn the things that I don't know. Um, and the skills that I've got, my ears will, uh, and my kind of depth of knowledge of genres can see me through working with people, but I will pick up from them and learn what they know, or at least the essentials for composition, uh, for create, uh, creation. Mm. Well, it's clearly worked for you so far, hasn't it? Keep on doing it, I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> sometimes it doesn't work, but uh, hey, uh, I mean, that's the thing about mistakes. Mistakes are actually lessons. Uh, I'm always positive about these things. And yeah, they can demoralize you. They, they can get you down. But um, if you look at them as lessons and learn from them and then improve, it's no different to an exam. You know, you're supposed to learn the things that you fail on, the things that you get wrong. So when it comes to your exam, you know the things that you failed on last time. If it happens again, you'll know the answer mm -hmm. as opposed to knowing what you do know. And I think a lot of us do fall into that kind of comfort zone of I know this it gives me confidence, so I'll keep playing that or keep doing that. But you have to put yourself on the line. I think that's what I'm not afraid of. I'm not afraid of putting myself on the line. And I learned that through British music, actually, that so much of British music and its history is about people who put themselves on the line and bared their inner self, their soul, their hearts, through their lyrics and their music and their playing. And they're not afraid to show you know, this is how I play, this is how I sing, this is what I feel in my lyrics. And and it's reflected in bands like, a lot of bands actually, but I mean, the most obvious thing is probably in, in the punk era, say, maybe the Sex Pistols or the Buzzcocks or, um, you know, anything along that line, you can feel the honesty. Um, and I love that. And that's what I'm always trying to achieve. Mm. And um, you kept yourself well so busy over the years with all sorts of things as well. But I know you're you're also the founder of Desi Guitar and the Asian Blues, and um, you work a lot, obviously, in the art sector um, with your band. And um, you've got a lot, just so much going on. So I guess let's just touch on uh, why not Desi Guitar and the Asian Blues. And so tell us a little bit about these and why you founded those. Uh, I think. It, I mean, it all boils down to identity. So I spent, um, I mean, it wasn't because I was working with the Arts Council, but the Arts Council kind of, it did help me, definitely help me, because they funded me for um, three projects. And they were about research, really, about identity, about the South Asian culture and its kind of uh, current situation to its history and I, I found that I didn't know my own history because the history I'd learned in school was so biased and so one-sided um, that I really wanted to know and it, you can't just look at a, a one-sided history like a western history you have to look at the other perspective just like a war I suppose that you have to see both perspectives and you get um a ground, you know, where you get the full picture, you can see where people are saying the same thing and you see where people are not, where they differ. And I needed to do that research. Um, and it was horrifying, <laughs> to mm. say the least. And then it, there was a reality check. And then I realised that identity for me wasn't... Um, 
was a false identity, that it was an identity given to me, or the choices of identity are given to me. And I think a lot of us have these, well, these are your identities, choose from them. It's like being stopped by the old bill <laughs> and yeah. then so asking you, you know, what culture do you come from on that white slip of paper? And I always I always picked white Irish mm. <laughs> and I just kind of, just because I was offended by the choices and I didn't want to be labeled in that way. And, and then I, now I, you know, I realize that you, you have to almost uh, reverse engineer yourself to know who you are and what you are. Um, and in reverse engineering myself, I realized that in my playing, I had to find my own identity and style that so many great players have. But even those players the great ones that we call great have a culturally appropriated style and nobody can deny that they're not influenced by the blues or they're not influenced by some other genre and where do those genres come from and it's almost like if you really did go down that history and explore it you'd find that your identity is actually appropriated so i you know, I, I I started to look at myself and say, well, my history is different. It's not um, that, you know, it's not black culture, even though it's heavily influential on me because I was brought up in black community um, and my friends in black church and in on in my sports like basketball and the team I was playing for, Side Tropics. Yeah, I was hugely influenced by the black community, but finding my own identity, I, I found at home that my ears were adapted, adapted to, they adapted to two forms, East and West. Uh, not fusion, because I hate that word. I, I just find it such a colonial 80s, put, uh, you know, uh, all the South Asian musicians with the top jazz players into mm -hmm. this genre of music, and we can't go any further than that. But I found that... Um, and I, I was looking for my own identity, and my ear doesn't hear black and white notes for a start, so I can hear quarter tones and eighth tones straight away. So I was brought up in that culture, in the Bollywood film industry, hearing that what my mother and father used to listen to. But at the same time, I was a rocker, and um, <clears throat> lots of genres of music, not just necessarily that, but I am a rocker at the end of the day, because... I wanted freedom of expression and the guitar is a symbol of rebellion and I wanted to um, be loud because I've been quiet all my life and the oppression I feel, well, suppression, I should feel, I mean, feel inhibited by, um, you know, cultural pressures, religious pressures and peer pressures and community pressure and so many things prevent me from being the person I want to be. Um, and I think a lot of people can understand that because we face it, whether, you know, it's a gender pressure or it's about sexuality pressure or um, disability pressures. And, and sorry, I know this is a lo really long story. No, but go it's on. It's fascinating. It's the kind of roots to finding my own genres. So I created my own genres. The first genre I created was called Asian blues because I felt that the blues was music... Um, about tragedy, I can't speak for somebody, you know, because I'm not, I'm not an African, I'm not, uh, maybe we're all descendants of, but, you know, I'm not a black, you know, African-American or, or, or West Indian or any culture, but I feel my, um, I think that it's about tragedy and about the sadness and, you know, slavery, that's where it comes from. But then I looked at my own culture and I thought, well, we have our own 
tragedy, our own story of 400 years of colonial rule, tragedy of it, um, the millions of people who died, um, the tragedy of all the events of each century from the East India Company through to the First World War and Second World War and the Crown taking over um, South Asia. Um, so that influences in my father. My father's journey is being in the Indian Army, seeing partition, seeing him, not seeing all everybody die, but he, he witnessed and understood the, uh, that trauma because he went through it and we lost family through that. Pakistan was formed, uh, uh, East and West Pakistan was formed. Um, and then moving to England, he got a job in the Reuters Press Association through a very close friend of his, settled in Manchester. I was born in Manchester, I was born in Longside on a council estate. Um, I grew up happy, poor but happy. Um, and then that other influence started, that British influence, the schooling, the friends who were white, English, Irish, predominantly Irish in Longside at that time. And then my other friends who were Jamaican and Trinidadian and, and Bayesians. And, um, and I had this kind of melting pot of cultures influencing me and the sports and the music. And music made the friends. I was playing guitar from seven and all through school I was making friends because I used to bring the guitar in. And I felt this blues because... I faced racism at school and I was, you know, bullied. I was chased by gangs, you know, uh, not all skinheads, but the, the skinheads that used to chase me. And when I used to get beat up, I had this kind of my own blues that, that I went through, even up to this very day, even today in music, I still face that racism. Uh, it's a little bit more clever. Um, but that was my Asian blues, <clears throat> that's what I mean by this is such mm. a long story that no, <laughs> to no. tell you, you what need the Asian there, blues yeah. is I have to explain almost the trauma and tragedy of South Asian history um, and why I called it the blues even though that is a African or black American uh, you know African American thing uh, I I appropriated that name in a way but in that I thought yes I've just appropriated something so I changed what is the aesthetic um to the desi guitar because i'm a guitarist first and foremost uh, the composer and then sometimes singer i i then thought my guitar style is actually a very uh cultural we call this is almost like your own home style like home style cooking or or desi you know it's traditional so i link the two words i'm a guitarist and desi um, they went together for me. I, I play in my own way. Sometimes you hear quarter tones and eighth tones. Sometimes you hear rhythmical playings that are actually derived from rabab and santur and sarod and sitar, sarangi, um, Indian classical vocals, even katak dancing, um, classical forms in dancing, and parent um, of uh, tabla, um, the mathematical rhythms of tabla. Um, and also my heart and soul mindset of my Punjabi background, um, the rhythms of um, Bhangra, um, all those factors play a role in, in my guitar playing. So it's my own identity. It's not one that I share with any white culture in a sense that I didn't, it's not derived from the Manchester music scene in that sense. There's nothing in it that is... Um, 
Oasis or Stone Roses or Smiths or New mm. Order or Joy Division or it's not that at all. Even though I live in Manchester and I've had the honour and privilege to have played in the Stone Roses mm. and written and played with Ian Brown and and then outside the city with Paul Weller. Uh, that's just a fraction of... So even though you might say, oh, you are most known for your work with, I actually know that most of South Asia knows me for my work with uh, Overload, or, which is a Pakistani group from Lahore, or they know my work with uh, Dalbir Singh Ratan, a fantastic, amazing tabla player from Birmingham, uh, who's a student of a world-class player called Sri Sukhvinder Singh Namdari, um, world-class tabla player like um, Ustad Zakir Senji. And um, so, do you, see, you, do you see what I mean? That we have a difference of perspective mm-hmm. And the world, you might think, and this digital age really shows it, that you might have a perspective that the world is about this genre of music or so forth. But in actual fact, continents, millions of people now, billions of people that you are getting to through the internet, through digital technologies, um, actually are telling you, I'm clicking on this, I'm viewing that, look at the numbers one billion, two billion, and it kind of makes perspectives kind of shrink and make you realize the global picture. So in the global picture, my style is called the Desi guitar. Um, it came from the foundations of the Asian blues, but that's what I call my style of playing, yeah. Sorry, I know that was really long. <laughs> no, it was an unexpected answer, but brilliant. Um, and now I'm just curious about your particular style of playing. So have you sort of incorporated that into what I would call, or anyone might call your mainstream works? I'm doing air quotes, which you can't see there. So, for instance, <coughs> it, it the Stone is, Roses, yep. Simply Red, that sort of yeah. thing. Or do you adapt to, uh, you know, the genre that you're playing with at the time? Um, it is always there. It's like... You can't, I can't think and cut out what is me already, you know. I, I'm not a session player. I used to be in the early days, but I kind of changed um, because I realised that I didn't want to be playing what people were paying me money for. I wanted to play the way that I naturally play because that's what I've learned from the greatest bands in Britain. Um, to play that the way you naturally play is the best way and the most iconic and the most influential and historic and influent, you know, influential in terms, in terms of how you inspire other people. I mean, I want to see other young people from Southeast Asia and South Asia and uh, Africa and wherever and South America kind of going, looking at my plane and going, I want to do that, but I'm going to do it that way and look into myself and find my own identity. So, um, the playing is always me. Even when I was playing with the Stone Roses, I could, I could have uh, ironed out every nuance of me and played it as John Squire. Mm. But I'll never be John Squire. And John Squire will never be me. Um, and the Roses are a band. They're not a bunch of session players. They're a band. They're your friends, your mates. You're supposed to be yourself. You know, it's like you wouldn't act with your friends all the time, would you? They know you. They know your character and nature. Mm-hmm. They, they, go, they want a conversation. They want an honest conversation. So music is an honest conversation. I, I can't be in a band and 
I had this issue when I was with, um, I did do a session in around 2010 with Stephen Wilson from Porcupine Tree and went down that prog rock world tour route. And fortunately for me, racism and the way the world works prevented me from continuing because of a visa refusal, because I is Welsh, <laughs> as I like to call it. <laughs> and uh, that's what they said. At the, I said at the US Embassy when they consulate, when they turned me down in the middle of a world tour. But that was, I struggled with that because it was like playing other people's parts again and trying to f- neutralize myself in a way, uh, which just didn't work. And, but playing, being myself and being honest in the way that I play works best for bands and works best for me in terms of writing and writing new music. And, um, I think we, there's a vicious cycle in, <clears throat> when you start to become a session musician because you are looking to please people and you're always trying to do what they want because it's their track. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying it's not for me um, that I had to burn bridges so that I couldn't go backwards and reverse engineer my playing, meaning that I lowered my straps so I couldn't even play the chords and the um, scales that I used to zoom through as a an 80s oh, wow. Ibanez guitar speed merchant player. So I wanted to learn about the identity within playing. How do iconic players develop their, how have they developed their identity from, like I said, from the Sex Pistols to, you know, um, I don't want to name names because some of them have, you know, like I said, appropriated their music so much. And I suppose I have from the influence of great players like Jimi Hendrix that I kind of aspired because I saw him as an icon in terms of, not in terms of just his guitar playing, but in terms of, it was a black man, an African-American who was changing the world and he wasn't played on black radio. And I, I could relate to that, that, I didn't fit into my own community and my own, the South Asian radio stations weren't playing my music. And I was in the mainstream playing for, you know, rock groups like Asia and, um, Stone Roses and Simply Red and Rebel MC and, um, working Ruby Turner and Errol Brown and Hot Chocolate, Ian Brown, Paul Weller, so many things. And even on the prog rock scene with JBK, Jansen Barbieri Khan and, uh, uh, Yukiro Takahashi san from uh, Yellow Magic Orchestra, a, a real depth of progressive music to Indian classical to soul and R&B and 10 years in reggae music. I, but what I learned is that identity is the key of it all. And, I'm just honest when I play. I, 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 whatever comes to my heart and my mind, my soul, I play within it rhythmically. You might not hear it in a scale like you identify cliches of music. You know, it's like there are so many cliches in music that you relate to through films and film culture. Um, but it can be uh, in the, the music through the rhythm. It can be in the timing um not just a choice of scales so when i play the guitar i yes i can choose a scale which represents a rag for instance um or i can choose a choice of notes and melodies which are almost out of the film's bollywood school of playing or but that's melody still and the part of it that i find I draw from British music culture and American and other countries too is the attitude and the uh, expression, um, that kind of freedom that comes from drugs, sex, rock and roll. (laughs) It's 
because I'm sober as a judge. Uh, I'm a good, uh, well, I'm a bad Muslim boy. <laughs> and <laughs> it's, you know, it, that inhibition prevents me from being, say, disrespectful to my parents or to my peers and things. And yet in the rock and roll industry, you throw all those things away. And that's free. That's real freedom of expression. And everyone knows the stories, you know, the Ozzy Osbourne stories and mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the Sex Pistol stories and the you name it stories. And I, I just love that freedom, that beauty within freedom of expression. Mm. And that's where all I'm trying to achieve. And I can't do that if I'm being confined by people to this is what you need to play. I like the Frank Zappa approach. I don't think shows should be the same. It'd be so boring to me, you know. I'd be like, well, if I wanted to do that, then I'll, I'll go and clock in, you know. Yeah. Um, and that I guess that explains why you've done such a wide variety of projects and all kinds of things. You've done, um, I think you touched on it earlier a little bit, you, you scored um, a South Asian symphony for the, was it the Manchester Orchestra, you said, and um, music for the Camerata. PlayStation game. That's right, sorry. Um, yeah. the, the PlayStation game Eliminator, wasn't it? So very, very different projects there that yeah. you've obviously taken on. Maybe I'm guessing for the reasons you've just said, you don't want everything to be the same, right? Um, those are just the things that I've been faced with through perseverance and uh, potting out instead of making things about money. If you pot out, you know, you perform, you play, you just uh, stay positive, you go out and meet people and somebody recommends you to somebody else. And that's Mike Joyce from the Smiths, ex-Smiths drummer. He recommended me to the Manchester Camerata because they'd approached him about some work. And But when we got talking and I told them what I was doing, it just coincided with the 70th anniversary of uh, India's independence. And and I said that I could write a South Asian partition story for them. Oh, no big deal, yeah. And I think (laughs) I was thinking in my head, like, can you? (laughs) You know, you haven't done that yet. But I I, I did say that. And then I went away and and drew on things that I'd done in the past. And I I formulated a story from albums I'd done and then created this symphony. So the challenge was there. It was fresh and new. And this is what I really wanted. You know, the next step outside of the rock and roll world where I've done all that, you know, throwing TVs out of hotel room windows sober. (laughs) And... I just wanted to go the next step, a new education, and the Manchester Camerata, who are doing the Hacienda Classical Tour, that's the orchestra we're talking about, the, uh, they gave me an opportunity to learn something new, to go to the next step, working with orchestra for a man who's illiterate, musically illiterate. Um, and it was a challenge. That's all it was. Um, the same way that when I met people from Psygnosis through my, fel- my friend um, Phil Beaumont, who's a pro audio dealer in Oswestry Street um, Systems Workshop, he kind of introduced me to he introduced me to Psygnosis. My brother, actually, my older brother who plays Abdul, he um, was already he's a programmer, uh, a scientist, and he started out in um, Ocean working for Ocean in Manchester, one of the software houses. We're already familiar with uh, soundtrack work in the 80s. I mean, this is like the history of soundtrack work, I would say, you know, part of. And he was making music and and writing programs for how to make polyphonic music from Sinclair ZX Spectrums and um, after, obviously, the ZX80 and 81. Um, So we have a tech history and a relationship to gaming right back to the first home computers. So when Psygnosis came to me, 
I, I understood because I'd already kind of worked with games before, you know, learned from my brother. And I, it was another challenge. Can I write a soundtrack? I've always wanted to do that. I've dreamt of these things. And somebody was offering me a job to do that. So Eliminator was the game. And it followed on from Wipeout, which is a revolutionary um, kind of track game, speed game, uh, shoot up kind of game in the early days. And I think Joe Satriani did one of the, did the soundtrack for Wipeout. So I did this one for Eliminator. But these challenges, that's all it was about. It's just, just about, um, hey, this is new. This is fresh. Again, yeah, I learned something new. It'll teach me something. I'll improve, hopefully, and I'll uh, evolve. Mm, yeah, uh, it's incredible, really, to hear about the, the scope of the things you've done, especially when you say you're taking on projects like this without basically saying you don't know what you're doing. But, I mean, it kind of turned out okay, though, didn't it? Uh, well, um, sometimes it doesn't turn out okay. <laughs> but like I said, you know, you learn from your mistakes. It's not just uh, that you, you know, hey, you give up. Uh, and like I said, and my mentality is I'm the kind of person who, who gets up and brushes himself off and tries harder um, without the aid of somebody helping me up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just come from childhood that way. Um and when I was working with the orchestra, obviously I didn't understand uh, arrangement, but the arranger, um, uh, who was really helpful, he kind of allowed me to, as we were using Sibelius, um, to throw my melodies in through a microphone and that would be converted into notes, notation, which I saw. And then I realized the way that um, the octaves were so important, which stave that the music lies, uh, lay on, did you know decided which instruments it went to uh, almost because they lie in different octaves and I, I started to develop that sense of I know when I want a part to go to the violas instead of the mm-hmm. violins or I want it to go to the cello or uh, instead of you know is it a clarinet part or is it an oboe part or I, I started to see what he was doing and then the part that was missing was um because he was arranging and writing parts and I was like I don't like those parts. It was the creativity, the composition part. And I Mm. found that my strength lay in composition and gave me confidence to write for a whole orchestra because I understood melody and composition and I had confidence in it. And I could say, no, I don't like that. I want this melody and I want those instruments to play it and drop this to that instrument because I want it to feel the low end within that. I want clarity within you know, these instruments. So I want it to go to the wind instruments. And that confidence came from my f- solid foundations of understanding songs and melody and and knowing that I could learn what they could teach me and combine it with my skill set and then evolve to the next level. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're, that's clear or not. I'm not very good at explaining myself. No, I think you absolutely are. Absolutely. And, um, you're, I think you're quite modest as well. You didn't mention this earlier, as well as being a doctor. I've seen as well, um, this is amazing. So the Queen recognised your contributions to the great British economy um, in the sort of culture and the music industry in uh, 2005, wasn't it, with Brian May, Jeff Beck and the Bee Gees, none other than the Bee Gees. So tell us a bit about that. What was that like? 
and the late great Jim Marshall of Marshall Amplification, who supported oh. me for decades and decades. He was there with his with his brandy in his hand, <laughs> and he'd been to many. He's Sir Jim, and uh, I was just sat next to him, and I didn't tell him that was an indoor sea, but uh, we just had a chat about the palace and mm. which were the toilets that um, you know John and uh, Paul used to build a bifta. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, it was an amazing time you know to be honored by the queen per se but i mean for me it was like i wanted to see what the palace was about because you know for me the you know royal family and the history with south asia is you know Mm. (laughs) well let's not even go there yeah let's not uh, go there that could be a whole other podcast we've already done yeah taken up probably (laughs) half an hour with the, the introduction so i Well, if I explain the work I was doing at that time, from 2003, I was working with the British Council. The British Council had um, a a fantastic company, funded me to to perform and to teach, to run seminars for young people and for music colleges and universities and in general performances in um, in Northwest Africa, in the Middle East, and in South Asia. So I was playing, I was probably one of the first rock musicians playing from the West, playing in Libya, in Syria, um, in Jerusalem, uh, Tunisia, Morocco, um, and then up to, like I said, into Jerusalem, and then across to Pakistan, tours there, India, tours there, Bangladesh. So I did a lot of work across Northwest Africa, Middle East, and South Asia. Maybe they chose me because I'm... British, Pakistani, Muslim, that's, you know, how they, how they classify me. But, um, so, um, I suppose they wanted to show a a relationship between the Muslims of the United Kingdom and how we fit into the country and what our perspective is and sharing that perspective with people abroad who have a picture of, you know, bowler hats and brollies. So, uh, and it's to break that generalization, uh, the stereotype uh, per se, you know, um, a British Pakistani Muslim rock star <laughs> is kind of breaking that perception, mm-hmm. I suppose. And uh, But for me, I, my mind was blown by Tripoli and Benghazi and the young kids I met and the festivals I was doing in Morocco and Tunisia and then Jerusalem, wow, and Damascus. I saw these places before they were blown to bits, you know, and the way that people lived and the, the friend, friendliness of them and their love, the humanity. Um, and that, that's another very pivotal and important time for me when that relationship of human beings through music, no passports required, was a revelation to mm-hmm. me. Um, and anyway, I, I, sorry, cut a long story short. So I was doing all this touring work and uh, the Pakistani tour. I mean, when I went to Pakistan, it was I met all my relatives I've never met before. Oh, wow. I hadn't been to Pakistan since I was a child because I was afraid of my arranged marriage to my cousin, and um, and we grew some. There was some kind of uh, they call it besti, which is disgrace. <laughs> You've Hi. disgraced the family. You've dis- sorry, you've dishonoured the family. If you turn somebody down and it's a relative or mm-hmm. something like a cousin. But I was only young at the time. But anyway, 2003, fast forward, 
here I am touring Pakistan and all these relatives were coming to the shows in, in Peshawar and in Lahore and in Karachi. And can you see from the perspective of, of, of as a British citizen who's lived, um, you know, born and bred in England. Yeah, different world, I bet. It was mind-blowing for me. Uh, and I'm rocking out and talking to people and sharing. But then I've got this affinity. I was in tears. You know, it chokes me up now thinking of how close I felt mm. that I found a side of me which I didn't even know about. I yeah. discovered a part of me I never even knew about and brought that home with me. And then all this work over the years, uh, the touring in India and, and in Bangladesh, and it, it, the, I think the British Council had recommended me to um, the, the Crown as such, and I was invited and honoured to be there, lined up with, you know, uh, Brian May and Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page and, uh, you know, the likes of Eric Clapton. And, and they're all looking at me like, who's he? <laughs> <laughs> Not too shabby. What was really funny about it was to be in this lineup and me thinking to myself, ha. Huh, I'm me, not you. And you don't know who I am. I know plenty about you guys, but the fact <laughs> I'm here says something, <laughs> you know, that it's not all about just, you know, a white rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. And, yeah. And I know as well, um, onto some other achievements of yours, you founded, um, sorry, co-founded No Label, which is, and the name initially came from, I saw a rant that you had, I'm guessing, about a major record label or major record labels in general. I'm guessing <laughs> how you didn't need them and, you know, you'd start your own label and call it No Label Records. So yeah, um, I'm I was you laughing at the memory of that. What was all that about then? I was very angry at the time. <laughs> I um, guess that. <laughs> it was uh, noughties um, and just before that prior to that so i was working on ian brown's uh, debut solo album as a co-writer and as a band member <clears throat> in fact it was only the two of us working on that album um and that in itself is a story because it was written on a, a porter studio on a four track cassette player at home um and it's when i actually saw money uh, I never really saw it with the roses, apart from the fact I was carrying a 1959 Gibson Les Paul around in my hands all the Ooh. time <laughs> that I'd inherited um, from the band. Um, but I think at that time, I, um, I still wanted to be my own entity. Uh, I developed as a songwriter with Ian Brown and... Then I started writing music and I put a fantastic band together with Mike Joyce and Andy Rock from the Smiths. So, I mean, people don't even know this, but at one time, I, uh, under my own name, Aziz, my first album, Lahore to Longsight, was an album with the rhythm section of the Smiths and myself as a trio. And because of 9-11, it never went anywhere. The American tour was cancelled. Mm-hmm. But prior to the formation of this band, I was trying my best. I had the publishing deal because I, I, I owned uh, 50% of a lot of songs of Unfinished Monkey Business and songs on uh, Golden Greats and songs after that, um, Solarized and Greatest and with Paul Weller on <coughs> 22 Dreams or which songs were on? Uh, there were other albums as well. Um, but there were various things on Asia, uh, on Arena, Asia Arena. I had co-writing you know, credits and I understood publishing, but the record companies were still rejecting me. And I was so angry at the time, you know, and it was mm. one of the, I mean, I, can't, I don't want to say it here because obviously, you know, the expletives will get wiped anyway, but it was no, a case No, they absolutely of, won't. 
All right. Well, I mean, I was like, I don't need no fucking record company. I have to turn on man on this, sorry. <laughs> but uh, I just went, I, I don't need any fucking record company. And I said, I'm going to start my own label. I'm going to call it no label because I don't need an effing label. And um, I'll, I'll start my own. And I found partners, um, you know, to run the company per se. But I was also one of the co-directors of the company because my input was all my contacts and my experiences and the respect that I'd built up with people within the industry and there was we were making ground you know headway with it the when the band was formed then we were playing the 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 enemy brats and things like that and at the Astoria and it was really going somewhere we're on a support tour with um, Paul Weller on the Illumination tour uh, or it might have been heliocentric i can't remember um but that yeah the label came from that from a rant from me angry at the way that record labels labels are still rejecting me i've got all this songwriting credit i'm I'm showing that i'm a performer i'm showing i can sell records and yet they still don't want to sign me as an artist um and i'm not going to say that they're better than other artists i'm just saying there's room i would think that there would be room for me to be signed and even after all I've done, I'm still getting rejection. So I thought the only way around this wall is to hop over it or dig, dig under it. And I started my own label, No Label Records, um, which didn't last. But then I formed something maybe not through anger, but actual through, uh, actually through thoughts. And I called my new label Indus Records, Indus, because I see the Indus as the beginning, as they say, the beginning of life and its estuaries. Mm-hmm. And Punjab, you know, the Punjab, you know, the five estuaries uh, of the beginning of life and the fertile lands of the Punjab and the history of the Indus Valley. And I thought that relationship to the birth of a, my own label, a new label, which was just myself, nobody else. And through that, I could distribute products. Um, I thought Indus was, Indus was a good name for a, for a label. Mm. Uh, so that's where I'm at today, releasing music through Indus Records. Mm. And you mentioned um, earlier the, uh, the Les Paul. So do you still have that now? No, uh, unfortunately. Oh. It went on to Richie Sambora. Um, I believe. So when I joined the Stone Roses in 96, um, originally, I mean, a lot of people know anyway, I, I, I was called in by my friend uh, Robbie Maddox, who was the drummer at the time in the Roses. Uh, it was to help with the demos for, let's call it the third coming, uh, because John had vanished and they needed guitar parts. So he asked me and I came, I was like, sure, yeah, I'll help with the demos and play guitar for you. Uh, so I got involved in the early songs and new songs for the uh, uh, new album um, in writing. So like um, Black Sheep and Ice Cold Cube and um, there's, a, there's a couple of others. But um, Nana, that was another that ended up on the Unfinished Monkey Business album. And then when John didn't come back and he announced that he wasn't coming back, then the hunt was on for a new guitarist and uh, I was selected... Um, I mean, some say it was because, you know, they didn't want Slash in his leather pants, didn't want leather pants in the band. So uh, uh, Kelly from Girl School was also on the cards. Uh, But anyway, I ended up in the Roses. Um, It's, uh, gosh, 
I don't know. I mean, I inherited all the equipment that the band owned. It's quite as simple as that. And I would say inherited, I'm the guitarist. So therefore the guitar equipment comes to me to play. I don't own it, but the band owns it. Mm-hmm. So I inherited a 59 Les Paul. I inherited um, a 1959 Gibson ES345, a 59 Strat, a 61 Strat. Uh, 64 it was a two-part strat so it was a 64 and a 62 i think sorry um i inherited vintage marshalls i inherited uh, kendricks and uh, vintage fenders uh twins and uh super leads uh plexis marshalls and i inherited fuzz faces and loads of pedals as well and oh my god what an experience to actually go from that kind of here's my cheap or whatever <laughs> to I, I mean i had some decent guitars because i bought them with my own money or and through the endorsements maybe through ibanez uh, you know different companies and golden guitars uh provided me with you know instruments all my life and but when you inherit vintage instruments you soon realize what the quality what they say how they play the reason why they're so revered and I was carrying this 59 Les Paul around in a beat-up case on flights and, you know, in, like, notorious little areas and, you know, not even thinking what the value of it was. But fast forward to the demise of the Roses, the 59 Les Paul got sold because of, probably due to tax reasons, and you know, to pay bills. Um, I mean, that was my decision. It was the band or Ian's decision. Mm. Um, so it left me and it went through a music shop and then got sold, I believe, to Richie Sambora. But it was mine after John Squires, you know, as a player. I played it for a few years. I recorded it on, on uh, Ian Brown's Unfinished Monkey Business. I recorded it on Golden Greats. Um, and same with the other guitars. They're the instruments on those albums. And then it got moved on. Um, but... Oh man, uh, it was just unbelievable. I, you know, I, that's when I changed again. I evolved because the instruments I was playing had Floyd Roses and things like that. And these had fixed tail pieces. And in playing it, I found that I was playing in a different way and composing in a different way. Um, but they were the instruments that I needed to record the parts with. And then I kind of left my. Floyd Rose whammy bar instruments behind because this had these had such stability and unique t- uh, vocal qualities. I think that's the best way to dr- um, describe them. They had unique vocal qualities um, that I changed, and I suddenly was in a world of Fender and Gibson and Gretsch and Rickenbacker, and those voices were on the recordings that I was making and. I did, I evolved and matured as a player and found the the voices were important in composition and, and fitting into uh, the songwriting different frequencies because I'm not saying that I studied it, but through experience I've learned about voices and where they sit in a mix and how to make a sound pronounced. Um, and I changed, you know, I went from the kind of modern era instruments back to almost the vintage style instruments. And although I might not play them all the time, I do have instruments which have vintage qualities or very unique qualities. You know, I believe in that kind of uh, Queens of the Stone Age approach of uh, unique amps, unique instruments, unique player um, and unique heart and soul and mind creates unique songs, hopefully. 
Yeah, and you mentioned, um, obviously, the love of vintage there and vintage Marshalls, so that leads us on nicely to Celestian. So um, when did you first start using them, and which guitar amps or combos do they feature in? I've used Celestian since the um, beginning of time, really. Um, in, it, it, because I have to think about it, because I never used to think about it in the old days. You know, you, you got a cabinet, and it was a cabinet, and you're lucky to have the money to yeah. get a speaker cab. And the first amps I had were like cheap. Um, yeah, they were cheap, like Park and uh, and the uh, budget Marshall amps, um, and some Fenders as well. And they had Celestians. Um, and at that time, you know, they weren't the expensive Celestians. But once uh, I kind of acquired the first Valve Marshalls that I had, yes, they were vintage thirties. Um, and uh, it suited me, you know, at the time, the, the vintage 30 suited me in the cabinets that I had in the, um, and even in the combos. But I think it was really around the um, 90s that I started to understand the voicing that even though I had vintage 30s, I started to want to play... Um, Cabinets, uh, I realized certain cabinets would give me a certain sound or, or combos. Mm. And in fact, there was an amp uh, um, that I had, it was actually Blackstar. And, and in the Blackstar Artisan 30, um, it had Celestian Blues. And they were my first kind of influence in terms of like, um, I liked 15 watt and 30 watt amps, but they were combined with 15 watt speakers. And they, these were um, blues. And it, it started teaching me about magnets as well. And I was, I realized that the difference between ceramics and Alnico magnets, and that's really when it set me off. And I found that I was drawn to either one for a specific sound, whether it was a warmer sound or it was a very... And not just the sound. I mean, I'm talking about the way that the volume part of the guitar, shifting the potentiometer and that change in impedance, how that affects an Alnico magnet in or how it affects a ceramic. They both react in completely different ways. So those 4x12s with vintage 30s or, or the 2x12s which I had or the combos or even playing Vox AC30s and as, as when I first heard those Al Nico Blues and I thought, wow, listen to the way that changes and then listen to the ceramic magnet ones and then the greenbacks, you know, and I found I needed something with a bit more power because I was drawn to JTM 45s and super leads and they I needed a more powerful speaker but I still wanted that Alnico magnet response um, and the ceramics when I need that sound for recording so I switched to Celestian Golds that was probably my first investment was buying mm -hmm. Celestian Gold speakers and fortunately I was introduced to uh, uh, John at Celestian and um John kind of gave me the opportunity to experiment with different speakers. It wasn't so much the touring as it was when John from Celestian actually gave me an opportunity to experiment with 12-inch, 10-inch, 15s, uh, ceramics, Alnico's, uh, combinations, 2s, 4s, 8s, wherever it was, you know. Um, I tried them and I found that the gold was the one I was drawn to and, the, and now the new creams as well. Um, but for the sound I'm looking for, 
and then sometimes combinations because I I really love the sound of heritage speakers as well. G twelve H's, you know, the, the anniversary as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did research the greens, um, and I was drawn to the tens in those actually. Uh, combinations of four tens, uh, beautiful sounds. And I didn't realize things like, you know, the 15, because I used to play, I played bass for people like Donovan and, you know, and I kind of was using a 1B15 and, and found that it was uh, bright. And I didn't ever thought that for a 15, um, even though I was playing bass through it. And I realized the effect of the diameter of the, you know, cone. And then John gave me an opportunity to try um, neodymium magnets, and I, I, I was really drawn to those, but I do like clarity and sound sometimes. I, you know, I absolutely, absolutely want no breakup. I know people can get obsessed with that slight breakup sound, but sometimes just clarity for me. Because when I want to play, say, like Indian classical style riffs, I just want the clarity of the instrument, the note and the... Um, those uh, neodymium range before they changed them and started to um, affect the cone, the paper of the cones mm. and, you know, with chemicals or wherever to make them break up. Um, that wasn't the sound I was looking for. I was looking for the very original neodymium release. Um, and it, it's, it's probably what I'm actually working with right now is um, speakers that kind of handle, you know, they're flat response. You know, I'm working with some digital amps a lot and uh, I'm trying to work with flat response cabinets um, a lot and they vary so much. Obviously, the construction and the way they work with um, the components. Um, but going back then, I think touring-wise, I yes, I went through the world of 800s and uh, 900 JCMs, but it was actually the JCM... DSL, um, so the JCM 2000 series and the DSL 100 and the 50 that I used. And I was aware that Jeff Beck was using them at the time. So I thought I'm going to look into it further. But that was my mainstay amp at that time. You know, it was a beautiful constructed amp. And um, there were amps after that that uh, I used as well that were aimed at the kind of plexi sound. Um, but Really, the DSL was the amp that I used a lot, and that came with a vintage 30 cabinet, for loaded cabinets. Uh, but I wanted to know what a cabinet with four Alnico Golds would sound like. And then I wanted to know what would a cabinet with two Alnico Golds and two uh, vintage, you know, heritage speakers, the anniversaries in it would sound like combinations, because I found certain manufacturers were combining cabinets, which kind of brings us into this digital world where... Impulse responses are now the new world, and I've, it's so easy to combine speakers. Mm. And you've, um, I think John's clearly let you play a lot with uh, a lot of the options they've got, because I know you're using Celestian Blues, as you said, Golds, Greenbacks, Anniversary 65, 75s, and of course, Vintage 30s. So um, you mentioned that bright tone that you like to get. Is there one in particular that really delivers that for you out of those? Um. I think they they all have a I mean it comes down to the instrument for me and the it's the combination of factors. I haven't strayed much really from the Alnico Gold. Maybe the the cream um the cream backs. Um the others I use them all. I on all honesty I use them all. They all have 
a varying kind of uh, roll off at certain points within the frequency spectrum. Um, and I do seem to come back to the Alnico Gold. Uh, but I mean, I think the factor with IR is that they don't include the microphones or the combinations of microphone, which is probably the, in the newer technology and the newer software that you can use to, um, you know, uh, combine that element. Because that's the element that's missing because that movement of the microphone, obviously across the diameter um, and also the distance and so forth, and the combinations of microphones, that, that's very important. Um, and being able to simulate that, um, I mean, it's the same with companies like IK Multimedia that, you know, they put so much research into mic placement uh, and giving you that choice um, gives you the realisation that what you think might be the brightest is not actually the brightest because it's just the way it was recorded and where the mic placement and what the combination is. Mm. And then the desk influence and, you know, this channel strip influence. And um, I, I don't really think that, I wouldn't say that one is the brightest. I kind of find the bright tone that I like through the combinations and the mic placement simulation and the way that my desk is set up or the channel is set up, the equalization is set up. Um, it's a very, it's not complicated. It sounds complicated, but for me, I have a very almost puristic side of it that I understand frequency or i think i do um and i just aim for a tone that i like and it does have bright qualities too but not always um and i will start my starting point is the alnico gold but the size of the speaker also because i found those qualities with larger speakers i'm experimenting with that kind of 15 inch idea instead of 12 um, not that the 10 is dark, but uh, there is a smoothness that I like about combination of 10-inch uh, 410s, say like in the greenback range. But I, 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 am, I am definitely an Al Nico magnet sound kind of person. Mm. And the ceramic is, if I want real vintage tones, then obviously it's the volume pot on the guitar, the ceramic style um it's that roll-off that you get, you see. Um, the ceramic magnet reacts differently to the Alnico, and I look for that in the impulse response. Um, and that's how I judge the quality of that uh, IR, is that the relationship because of that uh, organic electronic relationship between a guitar plugged into, say, a transistor-based fuzz going into a, um, a valve amp. Depending on what the, how, what the electronics of the input is, they react in different ways. Obviously, you can drive an amp or it will result in a boost, a clean boost. But uh, clarity is sometimes just um, is the instrument shining through in the way that I want it to. Can I hear the resonance of the instrument that when you play notes and you hear, you know, less is more, when you hear in between the notes, can I hear the resonance of the notes clearly? Can I hear this, the release of the note, you know, this, the note sustaining or, the, and, or release? Sometimes I, it, the note dies because I emulate um, the, an Afghan, ba uh, you know, it could be Persian, but the, the rabab is an instrument I try to emulate. And that sound is the very uh, short note it doesn't have sustain at all 
And I tried to achieve that in a percussive sound. And I like the punch of speakers. I mean, it's strange that, you know, the anniversary of the heritage is I'm still using that. Mm. I, you know, the G12H. Uh, but the others, I'm still exploring them. I'm, I've got too many choices. And that's the problem at the moment. When you have too many choices, it, it can be detrimental to achieving results uh to just getting on with it and not losing the energy uh, of creation creating because that's how i used to work in the old days with a four track cassette tape player you know mm. that it was the energy of the moment and moving on and now i'm finding myself with too many choices so i will that's why i say i, I have the go-to's because i haven't got that much time i don't mm. want to lose the energy um, and I will uh, use the Alnico Blues, the Golds, the Cream Greenbacks, and uh, and then if it is, I will go to the Greenbacks, uh, the G12M uh, or the H, or um, or experiment with different sizes. The Greenback comes in a, a ten as well, so. Um, I hope that answers the question anyway. Oh, oh, it very much does. And just as a side note, you've got a link again to Brian May there with the, uh, you mentioned the Celestian Blues, because apparently he bloody loves them. So apart from hanging around with him in Buckingham Palace, you've got another thing in common there. Well, I mean, it's nice to know because, you know, these are people <laughs> who are so influential in the world and revered. And, you know, I, um, I don't, not that I don't see myself any, you know, less than any other human being or nor should any other human being but i i understand their ears are important you know their experience and their ears and their um you know, they know what they're talking about uh, and and brian certainly does um you know he has he's got an electronics background i think in his family anyway or in himself so he, he knows and sometimes you take that knowledge and experience of others and you you find try it for yourself and see if it suits you. But I mean, you know, it's subjective in, in, a, in a sense that, you know, my sound is not another person's sound. That maybe they wouldn't like my sound. They don't like my choice of guitars. They don't like my choice of notes. They don't, mm. It's not for everyone. Um, but I, I try them because they, they, advice and you know, it's like, you know, these interviews probably that you're doing, people find things in them that are useful to them, or at least they can try mm, yeah. uh, and then decide whether it's for them. Uh, and with Brian May, I did. I, I tried things and I knew that with Vox AC30s, you know, the, the blues were a part of that legacy, part of that sound. And I wanted to know what that was about. And so I played bass as well. I know what a bassman's about, a Fender bassman. You know, I, I know what some of the big martial amps are about. And, uh, and I was a big kind of uh, Mick Ronson fan. So, you know, Marshall Major and amps like that and big heavy amps, big 200 watt things or whatever. You know, I, I wanted to know what that was about and the cabinets that came with them. And in that f first era of eight, <laughs> 12 inch speakers in one cabinet, um, back to Pete Townsend era, you know, he's like... I want to know what that's about. I, want to about shit. I did do that. You know, I got myself eight or 10 four by 12 cabinets, stacked them and plugged in. <laughs> and I did that back to the future moment. <laughs> it's kind of, um, I tried it. I understand what that is. <laughs> um, so that movement of air is 
there are two things, you know, with a, because I do play a sarod, an Indian instrument. It, uh, it's a 25 string instrument, the one I play anyway. I understand what that purity of an acoustic instrument is, what resonance is and the movement of air in that way. Uh, but I also understand the movement of air of the speaker the, and the cabinet that surrounds it, what holds it, the vibration. Um, it's like you look at the construction of great companies like, you know, Marshall and Fender, but, um, or Hughes and Kettner, you know, Hughes and Kettner cabinets, the consistency in the build of those cabinets in their pure tone range, for instance, um, and then to hold these Celestian speakers in them, um, they really allow that speaker to move air in the way that they should, whether it be in front or whether it be behind or generally around. Um, and then the microphone, there are so many important factors here. And I learned that through other great players, you know, from their experiences. And I tried them out. Um, and now digital technology is evolving so quickly that we're getting better results like the mic placements and mic combinations. And I remember working in a studio in Denmark, uh, Lengord Studios, fantastic place. Uh, a guy called Henning who owns it. And uh, they had a euphonics desk in there and it, I can't remember what series it was. Uh, and the desk from Meal Pie is the secondary studio. Um, but I remember working with servo motor controlled microphone stands <laughs> and it so much relates to today where you're simulating distances number of microphones types of microphones type of speaker size of speaker diameter all the parameters are available to you and i just remember those days of when you actually had mechanical arms that moved these things and without having to keep running in the uh, live room you could hear them from the control room um, the differences that they made and sitting here with a laptop and working with impulse responses and simulations um, it reminds me of that and I tried to achieve those same results because the ease of use um, combined with creativity and not losing the energy and that's where I want and what I need Mm -hmm, absolutely yeah you can really hear the passion behind it as well and um you know how much you've enjoyed uh playing around with all these bits of tech over the years and still do so um i think that's a, a lovely note to end on so i just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to join us today to talk about all the things to do with your music career all the wonderful things you've achieved and um your love of celestian and all things tech really so thank you so much oh, thanks for letting me share Oh, you're more than welcome. We'd love to talk to you again someday. I'm sure you're going to achieve a lot more things in future that uh, we'd love to hear about. Well, I hope we all do. Yeah. I hope we all do. <laughs> I think we, I hope we all have the opportunity. Yeah, yeah when well, we can all leave our own homes. That'll be the day, won't it? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much then. Have a great day. Thanks, Alice. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Headliner Radio, supporting the creative community.